The What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the What Would It Take podcast. I'm starting this episode a little differently because the topic area requires it. So instead of giving you a succinct personal narrative to introduce you to the issue of voter disenfranchisement, I'm going to paint the issue in broad brushstrokes so you have an idea of the history of this topic in the United States. Since the right to vote was created, it has been denied to large segments of the U.S. population, usually people of color, though it's important to remember that it wasn't until the fall of 1920 that women were granted the right to vote as well. Throughout U.S. history, voter disenfranchisement has looked a variety of ways. After the Civil War, the 15th Amendment made it illegal to disenfranchise voters due to race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Not coincidentally, the 15th Amendment was ratified in 1870 by 37 states. You know what else happened in 1870? 28 states passed laws that stripped voting rights from people with felonies. Also worth noting is the fact that the 13th Amendment technically abolished slavery except as a punishment for crime. You see where I'm going with this, don't you? Once slavery was formally ended, the criminal justice system became even more of a tool to keep people of color in their place. Currently, only the District of Columbia, Maine, and Vermont do not strip voting rights from people with felonies. That's it. In three other states, a felony conviction permanently strips your voting rights from you. Those states are Iowa, Virginia, and Kentucky. The rest of the country has laws on the books that strip voting privileges for a time or provide a pathway for having those privileges reinstated. The very fact that we even think about voting as a privilege and not a right when it comes to people with felonies is deeply disturbing. And it's worth noting that people of color are disproportionately represented in the criminal justice system. So once again, the laws that strip voting rights from people with felonies hit communities of color the hardest. This has to end. Not only is it unjust, but it's also completely illogical. Being convicted of a felony shouldn't affect whether or not you get a say in laws that affect you, your family, or the people you love. Yet, somehow, someway, it does time and time again. Unfortunately, voter disenfranchisement efforts didn't stop with the use of felony convictions. In the Jim Crow South, poll taxes and literacy tests were also used. These were tools that, at face value, might seem innocuous, but practically speaking, they were definitely barriers not only to voting, but also to voter registration efforts, particularly in black communities. Literacy tests could be required of everyone, but the samples that black folks were asked to read could be much more difficult than those of their white counterparts. And poll taxes served as economic barriers to black folks who didn't have the disposable income to pay them. Moreover, sometimes the poll tax laws contained exceptions which grandfathered in people whose fathers or even grandfathers had voted in previous elections, which meant that if you were white and couldn't pay, you still had a path towards voting. As if poll taxes and literacy tests weren't bad enough, physical violence and voter intimidation efforts were used to deter and prevent people of color from voting time and time again. People have literally died just because they registered to vote. 
the history of voter disenfranchisement has been violent and largely based on race. And while the civil rights movement brought about significant changes at the federal level, including the 24th Amendment, which outlawed poll taxes, and the Voting Rights Act of 1964, voter disenfranchisement continues. And today it takes two very different forms, gerrymandering and changes to state voting laws. This is episode six of the What Would It Take podcast. Today we're asking ourselves, what would it take for every voice to be heard? Listen in. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Students in high school, college, or graduate school are invited to enter a peace essay contest sponsored by Bethany Theological Seminary. This year's theme, Civil Resistance and Nonviolent Social Change in an Increasingly Virtual World. First prize is $2,000 and the deadline is May 15th. For details, email contactus at bethanyseminary.edu. Bethany Seminary, so that the world flourishes. Let's start with gerrymandering. This is the process of drawing voting districts in an unusual way that is designed to favor the political party in power. It's done through a two processes known as packing and cracking. And while those sound hilarious, I assure you they don't play out as humorously as they appear. According to the New York Times, a packed district is drawn to include as many of the opposing party's voters as possible. That helps the governing party win surrounding districts where the opposition's strength has been diluted to create the packed effect. Cracking does the opposite. It splits up clusters of opposition voters among several districts so that they will be outnumbered in each district. An efficiently gerrymandered map has a maximum number of districts that each contain just enough governing party supporters to let the party's candidates win and hold the seat safely, even during the, quote, wave elections when the opposition does especially well. And it packs the opposition's supporters into a minimum number of districts that the opposition will win overwhelmingly. So if you live in a Republican-controlled state, for instance, gerrymandering might ensure that Democratic voters are packed into a small number of districts that those elected representatives can win overwhelmingly, meanwhile maintaining the ability for Republicans to hold power in the vast majority of the remaining districts. Or... Or it could mean that lines are drawn in such a way that Democratic voters are diluted and split up among many districts, making it so that they don't have enough power and momentum to ensure that their candidate can win that district. Either way, whether it's through packing or cracking, gerrymandering does what it's designed to do, and it has created supermajorities across the country. State governments are responsible for drawing and redrawing district maps once every 10 years, usually after a census. Currently, Republicans hold the majority of state houses across the country and have since 2010. As a result, they've gotten to draw district lines to their benefit. This is why we see the supermajorities that exist in states like Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. To be fair, Democrats have also participated in gerrymandering, with states like Illinois and California being among the most notable examples. Why does this matter, though? Well, gerrymandering dilutes the political power of voters who don't align with the dominant party. This means that if you live in a Republican-controlled state with a supermajority, like, say, Indiana, the Democratic lawmakers will have very little political influence and power to pass laws that help their constituents or oppose the laws that hurt their constituencies. And since we know that black, indigenous people of color vote for Democrats in larger numbers than they do Republicans, 
the electoral power of black and brown voters is thus diluted significantly at the state level. In essence, gerrymandering allows for further disenfranchisement of marginalized populations in state electoral races. In May of 2019, the Center for American Progress published a report that highlighted the effects of gerrymandering on electoral races in 2012, 2014, and 2016. And you know what they found? The unfairly drawn districts shifted an average of 59 House seats in each of those elections. That means that every other November, 59 legislators who shouldn't have been elected were elected. And of those 59, 39 shifted in favor of Republicans. To give you an example of what this looks like practically, I'm just going to read verbatim from the report I just referenced by the Center for American Progress. From 2012 to 2016, the people of Michigan cast more than 50% of their ballots for Democratic Party legislative candidates. They voted for Democrats 52% of the time for the Michigan House of Representatives, a little more than 50% of the time for the Michigan Senate, and 51% of the time for the U.S. House of Representatives. So one would expect that slightly more than half of Michigan elected officials during this time were Democrats. Instead, Republicans held a decisive advantage at every level of government. Despite earning a majority of the vote, Democrats received only 44% of the seats in the Michigan House of Representatives, 31% of the seats in the Michigan Senate, and 35% of the seats in Michigan's delegation to the U.S. House of Representatives. Although this degree of misalignment is severe, it is not unusual. So again, that's just one example of how it played out over the course of three elections in one state, Michigan. But again, those results are typical and not the exception. Gerrymandering is affecting elections year in and year out. And usually those effects hurt people of color. While gerrymandering is clearly a problem and it affects both red and blue states, for the last decade, Republican legislators have gained the most from it. However, states are also using changes in election regulations to disenfranchise voters. Let's start with voter ID laws. On the surface, it sounds like a good idea to require some form of identification when voting to ensure that fraud isn't taking place. None of us want election fraud to happen. We want to be confident that our elections that are taking place are free and fair. However, these laws, which vary state by state, are highly problematic. In fact, the fact that they even vary state by state is highly problematic in and of itself. For instance, Wisconsin and Virginia only require a photo ID. In Ohio and Arizona, the identification can be a utility bill. And in states like Texas, you can use a photo ID, but it can't be a student ID, which obviously hinders younger voters. So there are different bars for what meets the qualifications of a valid ID and what doesn't, which means state by state, we are turning away different amounts and different types of people. And when discussing the controversy around voter ID laws, we're referencing states with stricter requirements such as state-issued licenses. Proponents of strict ID laws say they're necessary to prevent widespread voter fraud, which, I have to say this, doesn't exist. Voter fraud rarely occurs in the United States, and it is far from widespread. I feel like, given our current political climate, I cannot say that enough. Widespread election fraud is not taking place. Now, opponents of stricter voter ID laws say that the laws disproportionately affect older voters and voters of color. And while the debate is heated and has been for years, research 
has found little to no effect on election outcomes or even turnout. And I've got to be honest, I was surprised by this. But it turns out, though it's difficult to do the kind of rigorous research that we would like to on this topic, the studies that have come out in recent years and have been reviewed suggest that the effect on electoral outcomes from strict voter ID laws is negligible. They don't seem to depress voter turnout significantly, at least not in any way that can be distinguished from other factors like an unpopular candidate. Moreover, they also don't prevent or reduce election fraud because, again, it's not happening. You're likely wondering then why I'm even bringing this up if it doesn't seem to be swinging election results. Well, what voter ID laws do is disproportionately disenfranchise black and brown voters, and that's exactly what they're designed to do. So even though they may not be affecting the results of elections directly, they are still unfair and unjust. Let's just look at another example from Michigan that was referenced in an article I found on 538. I'm going to quote directly here. In Michigan's 2016 general election, voters who arrived at the polls without ID were able to vote after they signed an affidavit. Researchers collected these affidavits to identify a set of voters who would have been turned away under a stricter policy like the laws in Georgia, Virginia, or Wisconsin. By their calculation, about 28,000 voters, or 0.6% of the 2016 Michigan voters, lacked a photo identification. Those 28,000 voters were more non-white and more Democratic than the Michigan electorate overall. The author suggested that non-white voters were between 2.5 and 6 times as likely as white voters to lack proper voter ID. And while Michigan doesn't record partisan registration, the researchers' model-based estimates suggest that more than 70% of those filing affidavits would be Democratic primary voters. It's no accident, folks, that in the example from Michigan, over two-thirds of those filling out an affidavit were likely Democratic voters. Stronger voter ID laws are almost always a topic of conversation in Republican states. President Trump himself called for stronger ID laws ahead of the 2020 election to prevent supposed fraud. Basically, Republicans don't want to court black, indigenous, people of color as voters, so they just try to disenfranchise them instead by making it more difficult for them to vote. Now, you may be thinking, Ben, I got a license, my kid has a license, my dad has a license. It's not that hard to do. I don't understand what the fuss is about. Okay, well, to get a license, you need to be able to get to your local license branch, which requires transportation, money for transportation, time, and additional money to pay the fees associated with purchasing a license. If you work long hours or multiple jobs, you might not have the time to get to a license branch to begin with. Or maybe you have the time to go, but you don't have a vehicle, so you can't get there. Or or maybe you just can't afford public transportation. Or let's say you could afford public transportation, but you live in a city or town without adequate access to public transportation. Or maybe you can get to the branch, but you don't have the necessary paperwork to verify your identity. Now, it could be the case that you have the time, you have the transportation, and you even have the paperwork, but you don't have the money necessary to pay the costs associated with obtaining a license. Any number of these can be factors that prevent you from taking what sounds like a simple step and obtaining a state-issued photo ID. And the people most likely to be affected by these barriers are older people, low-income people, and people of color. And in case you start thinking that voter ID laws are as bad as it gets, just wait, there's more. 
there are a slew of other measures often put forth under the guise of election security. Let's take a look at a state everyone is hearing plenty about right now, Georgia. As you may be familiar with, Georgia somehow, someway, went blue in the 2020 election. Not once, but twice, actually. And you know how state legislators have responded? Well, they responded by putting forth legislation that would restrict ballot drop boxes, require more ID for absentee voting, and limit weekend early voting days. And what Georgia's trying to do here isn't new. In previous election cycles, other states have closed polling locations, particularly in non-white areas. They've limited the amount of time someone has to request an absentee ballot. They've reduced the number of people eligible for absentee ballots and more. Many of these measures would have a greater effect on low-income folks and people of color. Once again, that's no accident. Republicans use the myth of election fraud to put forth policies that are designed to keep potential Democratic voters at home. It's as simple and as terrible as that. I'm not being partisan. I'm not being overtly political here. I'm telling you what is happening and what has happened in each election cycle since 2010. Those are the facts, and they're hella uncomfortable. They should be. Despite continued legal defeat, state legislators continue to try this tactic. In 2014, Pennsylvania's voter ID law was struck down. In 2018, North Carolina had a voter ID law struck down. And get this, they had a second voter ID law struck down in 2020, citing discriminatory intent. I mean, I guess you know what they say. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. That seems to be what legislators and Republican lawmakers across the country are doing. And I think it's only going to continue as the demographics of our nation continue to trend more non-white. As people of faith, we can't make the claim that all people are worthy of God's love or that they're made in God's image and then support policies that strip or erode the ability for their voices to be heard through our legislation. Our proclamations about equality in the sight of God can't start and end at the church door. When we endorse leaders who favor policies that disenfranchise black, indigenous people of color, we're undercutting the gospel message many of us claim to believe. It's not enough to believe that God can love everyone. Just that faith without works is dead, love without action is useless. Justice is love in action. So in a world in which immigrant families are being torn apart by savage and inhumane policies, black men and women are being murdered by police without recourse, and systemic racism affects our education, healthcare, and legal systems, people of color need every tool at our disposal to ensure that we have a chance at saving ourselves from a political system designed to view us as disposable or even worse, as outright threats to its existence. Put simply, voter disenfranchisement is a barrier to equality of existence. It is a barrier to salvation here and now in this physical realm. And as people of faith, we are required to do something about that. We can't turn the other way. I believe the Spirit invites us day in and day out to use all we have at our disposal to participate in creating a society that is just and holy for all. And these voter disenfranchisement laws act as barriers to that precious work. Put simply, we're getting in the way of the Spirit. And it's time we stopped. It's time we stood up to those that are proposing these laws. It's time we saw them for what they were. And it's time we got out of the way of the Spirit. It's time we got out of the way of the work that God is inviting all of us into and made sure that the barriers that have been put in place for our kinfolk are removed. 
So what can we do about these problems? Well, in June of 2019, the Supreme Court ruled that the problem of gerrymandering is a political issue rather than a legal one, so they won't intervene. Justice Roberts noted that the effects of the practice do seem unjust, but he reiterated that the federal courts have no means of addressing the issue. So it's up to Congress. And frankly, the solution seems to be an independent commission that will draw voting districts in alignment with the proportion of the state population that votes for each party. So if a state's electorate is split 60%-40% in favor of Republicans, then this independent commission would draw the voting districts in a way that represents that 60-40 split. And we have the technology to do so. It's just a matter of using it to draw fair districts instead of using it to draw gerrymandered districts. In terms of voter ID laws and other election regulations, the solution here is straightforward. We need to apply political pressure to our elected officials. If voter ID laws are being considered in our state, like, I don't know, Georgia, we have to let our displeasure be known. And finally, I'm going to suggest a few things that are going to sound really familiar. Get out there and volunteer. This is especially important in underrepresented communities, and even in non-election years, local organizers are working to register folks to vote for upcoming elections. So do your research and figure out who you can get involved with and what organizations are participating in this work, and see if they'd like some help. It's also important not only to donate our time, but also our money. Originally, I wanted to find a list of organizations in most states that were doing this work, and then I realized that was just a a lot for me to do. So I encourage you to take some responsibility for this, figure out who's doing this work in your state, even in your city, and donate your resources to help them fight the good fight. Folks, voter disenfranchisement is not new. It's a tool of a political and power system and structure that's designed to keep certain people usually people of color, from realizing and accessing their political power and influence. As faithful people who believe and recognize that God is not only a God of love, but also of justice, we cannot look away. Even if the disenfranchisement works in favor of our political parties, we have to stand against it. We aren't called to be faithful only when it's comfortable or it aligns with our political views. We must be faithful all of the time. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, there are currently more than 250 bills in 43 states that seek to tighten voting rules, including the one that was just sponsored in the Georgia House of Representatives. And the Supreme Court just heard arguments this week in two Arizona cases that could further gut the 1965 Voting Rights Act. The efforts to disenfranchise voters continue. In fact, if 2020 has shown us everything, it's that after the election in November and the riot at the Capitol on January 6th, these disenfranchisement efforts have been reinvigorated. And we have to be reinvigorated too. It's time we stand up and put a stop to these continued attempts at stripping the voices of the people from the people. So what would it take to ensure that every voice is heard? We know the answers. Let's get to work. Thank you for listening to the What Would It Take podcast. To view the source material for this episode, check out the show notes. If you'd like to find more great content from Anabaptist World, visit anabaptistworld.org. And if you want to learn more about me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as Benjamin J. Tapper. Benjamin J. Tapper.